Welcome back to the program. Remembering the early days of cell phones, we all remember. Can you hear me now? For most of us, it was a modern nuisance. But for some, those that are hearing impaired or profoundly deaf, those words have far greater meaning. While much progress has been made in the technology, treatment, and study of deafness, we are really just beginning to understand the broader implications with respect to brain development, literacy, and the very ideas of acquisition of language. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Lydia Denworth. She's a former Newsweek reporter, London bureau chief at People Magazine, and professor of journalism at Fordham University. She shares with us her own personal story. In her new book, I Can Hear You Whisper, An Intimate Journey Through the Silence and Sound of Language, Lydia Denworth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. Tell us first about your son, Alex, and what you discovered in the first couple of years of his life. So Alex is my third son, and um, he uh, it's mandatory in most states that kids have a um, hearing test at birth now, and which is a great thing. But for us, it, it didn't actually pan out the way it's supposed to. So he, he failed a screening early on, and then we went back a few weeks later, and he passed. So we thought that he could hear, and it wasn't until he was one and not talking that we that we realized that maybe something had was not working. And I was reading to him and things like that at night, and he just wasn't responding the way my other two kids had. I would say, you know, point to the cow in Goodnight Moon, and he never could point to the cow. And I started to get really, really alarmed. Um, but I didn't know it was hearing until he was one. Talk a little bit about the process of testing infants and one- and two-year-olds for hearing. Uh, so there are several different ways that they, that, that is done. Um, so one is called, what Alex had as, a, as an infant was something called otoacoustic emission, or OAE, and they, and they can actually send signals down into the, brand, into the ear, and the ear sends something back that's a little like an echo. It's not technically an echo, but and that is measurable. I mean, that should turn up anything worse than moderate moderate hearing loss or worse. In Alex's case, it didn't, and it, it maybe should have, but um, but so that's that's one easy thing, and now a lot of pediatricians do that in their offices as well. But you can also, a more sophisticated test is something called auditory uh, brain response, the ABR, brain response test, and that... Um, is where they attach, they actually have to have a child sleeping or, or unconscious, and they attach um, electrodes, and they send signals in, and they can then measure more, um, more specifically how the brain is responding to sound and different frequencies. And um, so we had all of that. And, uh, you know, but, but also there's behavioral testing, just where, where people will start if, if a child is, is a toddler and they think there's a hearing loss, they'll send you into a, into a booth and they'll send signals and, and it's testing the behavior of the child. Does he turn um, to the sound? Does, you know, and they, have, uh-huh. they get the child used to it. So, and that was, eight, Alex was 18 months when he did that and he just failed unequivocally. But they had fluid in his ears, so they thought it was that. Um, and so it was still a little while before we really knew what we were dealing with. And once you, he was diagnosed with this progressive hearing loss, this profound hearing loss, talk a little bit about how you responded, what you immediately set out to try and do and to understand. 
So when he was first identified, it was a moderate to profound loss in both ears. So, you know, they measure across a, f- a range of frequencies and decibels. So um, that looks a little bit like the, the beach sloping down into the water. He had, you know, moderate in the low frequencies, and then it dropped down to profound in the high frequencies. So hearing aids seemed like a great option and that that would really work and that would allow, that would bring that hearing up into the level you need for conversation. Uh, so he got hearing aids just before his second birthday, and I kind of thought we were done for a little bit. But um, as I say in the book, this whole experience for us was a bit like falling downstairs in slow motion. It just mm. kept going. <laughs> it was agonizing, and, and it kept getting worse. And it turned out that in addition to right after we got the hearing aids, we had some medical work done to try to understand what had caused this because we didn't have any hearing loss in either my husband's family or mine that we knew of. And um, he turned out to have a congenital deformity of the inner ear called Mondini dysplasia. And then in addition, he has something called enlarged vestibular aqueduct. Those are technical terms, but what the second one means is that um, if he gets hit in the head or even just has a really big sneeze or a change in pressure, he can lose what hearing remains in his ears. And so um, so that happened very quickly on one side when he was two. He became profoundly deaf on the right and and then suddenly became a candidate for a cochlear implant, which is this technology that, unlike a hearing aid, which amplifies sound and uses your residual hearing, a cochlear implant bypasses your ear and sends elect- um, sound in the form of electrical signals straight to the auditory nerve and into the brain. Um, and so we we went from desperately wanting to hang on to every decibel of hearing he had to hoping that he was deemed that his hearing was deemed bad enough to qualify for an implant and because they thought he was going to lose the hearing in the left ear right away as well he he was a candidate and so he got the implant um just before four months before he turned three before we talk about the implant i want to talk about your concerns at that stage that the window in terms of his ability to learn language was was beginning to shrink yeah, so I, you know, all this time we were, we were kind of obsessively counting words and things like that. And once he got hearing aids, he started to make a little progress, but he was still really at the bottom of the language charts. They measure how much speed, how much language you can understand and how much you can say. And he was in single digits and um, and way behind all the other two-year-olds in the world. And so it was when we started talking to the cochlear implant surgeon, he said to me, um, you know, he's not getting, he's not getting, his language is not progressing as we'd like, and we need to implant him before he turned three. And I stared at him, I said, is there a deadline? Like, I, I, it was like there was this ticking clock, and I hadn't known it. And I mean, I knew it was important that kids learn language early, but I guess I didn't understand how, what that window looked like. And it's one thing that cochlear implants have actually allowed scientists to to see is because you can put sound back into the brain, you can see what does the brain do with it. And and what happens is the longer a child's brain goes without sound, um, the the less likely that brain would be able to use sound um, if it should come in later. So the brain, it's valuable real estate. It gets used for other things. That's a good thing if you're if you're going to be signing if you're going to use ASL's American Sign Language and sign, you actually start to use the auditory parts of your brain for visual things. Um, but if uh, if you want a child to speak and listen and have a cochlear implant, you need to get that sound in there um, in in that within that window, ideally before they turn three and really before they turn one. Now, did you have any reservations at all about the cochlear implant? 
You know, I really didn't. I, I, I once said that they had me at hello. <laughs> um, I, uh, I just thought it sounded really terrific. I didn't have reservations about choosing this for my son, even though, of course, I was, um, it was scary to, to put him through surgery at that young age. But what I did, what, what did upset me and what was hard was reconciling my view of this seemingly wonderful technology with the view of a lot of people in deaf culture that it really was the opposite, that it was pretty terrible. What is that all about? There are so many people that I've talked to that just don't understand why they would be anything other than, you know, great acceptance of this technology. And that is what hearing people almost uniformly say that, but, you know, this is really a question of walking a mile in someone else's shoes, and, and that was one of the things I wanted to set out to understand. Um, you know, they at the height of the controversy, which was primarily in the 90s, um, people in deaf culture said that hearing parents like me, that at the most extreme, they said it was child abuse and, and genocide to, to implant a child. Now, I would never go that far, and I don't. I don't agree with that at all. Obviously, but yeah. but I but I do now understand much more deeply that a cochlear implant to someone in deaf culture for whom sign language was is at the core of the of the community. Um, sign language cochlear implants were just another in a long line of attempted fixes for deafness, and deafness isn't something that people in deaf culture think needs to be fixed, and they they're they're very happy, successful, fulfilled people, and they have a language and a culture that they love, and they would like people to stop feeling like um, this is this is a necessary thing. Um, you know, that said, it it it. Uh, so I I now have a much better understanding of ASL and of deaf culture and all that is wonderful there. There are also a lot of deaf or hard of hearing people who do want help from technology. And so there's a lot of different people out there with a lot of different desires and needs and experiences. And so, you know, what I would like to do is is bridge is bridge the gap a little bit more. Fortunately, it's less controversial than it has been. Um, people are, you know, cochlear implants are here to stay, and they are working really very well in the large part, not absolutely perfectly and not for everyone, but um, they really can change lives. And so, you know, that's that's not going to go away. How does that world, how do people that are opposed to them see it any different than, than perhaps an artificial limb or, or, or some kind of corneous or retinal surgery? Um, they, they feel that, you know, deafness is not a disability. It's a difference, and it's just part of who they are, and that it's, it's not a necessary thing. And, you know, for hearing people we experience the world through sound. Uh, we don't even realize the extent to which we do that. I, I've discovered we take a lot of it for granted, but that is our center in a way. And deaf people have a different center. It's visual. And it's um, and so they just don't experience the world in the same way. And, um, and they, you know, um, at the most extreme, I guess they would say that that's like making... Um, uh, saying that you want your black child to be white or something like that. I mean, they have said that. I don't agree <laughs> with that kind of um, analysis, but, but that's where they're coming from. How do you want Alex to understand these differences? What's been really important for me was for him to just know the range of what's out there and to... You know, he right now he loves his implant. He he, and because of this book, I've I've had a lot of conversations with him directly, so that he understands some of 
what's out there and what's what the different views are. He says he's really he loves to hear um, so much so that he I have a hard time getting him to take everything off at night, which um, he really should do. But <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to. If he wants to hear, I want him to hear. But I want him to know that deaf culture is out there. He's learned some ASL, some sign language, and I have too. And I I felt that it this might be the kind of thing where when he's 18 or 20, he he might want to explore that side of um, of his identity. And I wanted him to never feel that I stood in the way and I want him to celebrate all the parts of who he is. And I feel like he's starting to do that. Talk a little bit about how Alex caught up, essentially, the plasticity of the brain and the way it was able to adapt once he had the cochlear implant. Uh, That was a really amazing part of the story for us is that, you know, as I said, with, with hearing aids, he wasn't doing all that well. Um, and so he got the cochlear implant just a few months before he turned three. You know, then they, it takes a few weeks after the surgery before they turn it on. And then you have to do a lot of work. It's not a magic bullet. It's not a flicking a switch. You have to, so he was in a specialized preschool for kids with hearing loss where it's a lot of enriched language and, and, um, and we were working with him all the time and he had speech therapists. But in 12 months' time, he went from those single digits I mentioned of, at the bottom of the charts to the top. Um, and uh, it was just stunning. It, his progress, I, I should say, is a bit unusual, and I think that in his case, you know, he, he had a lot going for him. He Obviously, he had engaged parents, but um, so do a lot of kids. He had two older brothers who talked to him all the time. He had a great a program. We're lucky to live in New York City where there are a lot of resources for kids like Alex, and, um, and, and he's a smart kid, <laughs> and he had a little residual hearing still in that left ear, and at first I gave all the credit to the cochlear implant, um, but he uses a hearing aid in the other ear, and at that time that was kind of unusual that for them to say keep that hearing aid in there, but our surgeon thought that you know he should get as much sound as possible, even if it was going to sound different from each side, if you can imagine. You know, what he hears through the hearing aid ear is a little bit like, um, well, let me start the other way. What he hears through the cochlear implant, I, I liken to fluorescent light. It's it's bright and unnatural, but it, it lights up all the corners. And what he hears through his hearing aid ear, I think, is more like a circle of candlelight. It's it's much smaller, but it's warmer and more nuanced. And so he had, his brain was, he was only two. His brain was young enough to be able to take those those different ex- experiences of sound and, and make something really meaningful out of them. And his language just took off so that by the time he was four, he was able to go to the same mainstream school that his brothers attend. Talk a little bit about the link that you discovered between hearing and sound and being able to learn to read. Yeah, that was one of the things that was most surprising for me is, of course, I knew that sound contributes to spoken language, but I really hadn't made the leap to connect that to reading so much. And I thought if I wasn't doing that, that there must be a lot of other parents who aren't doing that as well. And um, I, you know, I, I come to think of it as the sort of the neurobiology of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> it's a learning language is learning patterns and, and chids 
kids' brains really crave the repetition and rhythm and rhyme that comes from from storybooks and nursery rhymes and even music and poetry and, and books like Dr. Seuss's. And, and all of that is laying a foundation in the brain because to be able to read, you don't just need phonics. We think of the connection between letters and sounds, but there's a deeper, more fundamental level, which is to be able to break sound in the form of speech into chunks, into syllables and phonemes, which is the smallest sort of separate pieces of sound in language. And and if a kid can do that, um, he or she is really well on their way uh, to, it's not just about being able to do it, but how efficiently you do it in your brain. In fact, it turns out that the way a child's brain processes sound as they enter kindergarten is directly correlated to how many words per minute they'll read in fourth grade. And that just was stunning to me. Um, and so, and I also discovered that the majority of reading problems are 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 have sound at their heart, um, and it's it's sound processing that is going wrong for a lot of kids. And so, I didn't I didn't know that at all. And I sort of assumed that a lot of deaf people must read a, must read more because that would be a way of accessing the world. And it is true that many do. Um, and but many don't, and I discovered that that the mean reading age for deaf adults is is um, fourth grade and and below, and that was really frightening. Have there been advances in the cochlear implant technology and other kinds of technology, even in in the eight or nine years that that you've been dealing with this vis-a-vis Alex? And is it your sense that in some way that technology and the development of new technology may have been impaired by the fact that there's so much opposition to the idea? Um, I'll take the second part first. and n- Not really. I think actually that <laughs> cochlear implants had a really uphill climb. So before all the controversy within the deaf community, there was a lot of controversy within the scientific community. So the leading auditory neurophysiologists in the 60s when the ideas were first thrown out there, really didn't think this was going to work, and they didn't think it was worth the time and effort and money that you would put in to try to make it work. So it was a few people who were sort of stubborn and determined and and thought there was potential here who really stuck with it. And um, and so that was a fascinating science story for me. Um, and I would say that that actually slowed things down perhaps more. But then, and then, yes, then you had this, um, then you had this, controversy and this um, on a whole other level with with the deaf community. I'm not sure if it slowed things down, but it it probably did slow down decision-making for for individuals, and it complicated things. Um, And, you know, I don't know. We, my family has obviously been, has benefited from all of this because Alex came along at the right time, and we are often struck by how very different his life might have looked. And, um, And so... It's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of amazing to me, all the people and all the effort that went into this, um, into making this happen, and it changes my kid's life on a daily basis. And is the technology advancing? I mean, might it be that in five yeah. years, Alex gets a new cochlear implant that's new and improved? Right. So your first question, um, yes, it is. It's a pretty mature technology now, so it's improving. He's already upgraded one level. They've changed. There's an internal piece and an external piece. So when people hear the term cochlear implant, I think they often just think 
that it's implanted. And, and of course, part of it is. But what's implanted is the simplest part of the technology on purpose because you wouldn't want to have to go back in and do surgery repeatedly every time it improves. So the the changes are mostly on the outside, in the external piece and in the software and the way it works. And they're working on things like improving how you hear in music, how you hear in noise, how you hear music, things like that, which are still really quite difficult for people with cochlear implants. Um, I think that will continue to improve. But I think the real change, the sea change or the next paradigm shift is is to work on the level of the cell or the gene. And so there are a lot of very smart scientists out there working on things like hair cell regeneration and gene therapy um, to go in and chain and, and either repair damaged hair cells in the inner ear or um, stop damage from occurring in the first place or all kinds of different. There are a lot of different strategies, and I feel sure that some of them will work. I wouldn't bet against them. And as I said, you know, there was a time when no one thought cochlear implants would work, and now more than 300,000 people have them around the world. So, so clearly we have come a long way. And I, but I don't think that any of those other changes um, are like hair cell regeneration. It's, it's probably all 10 or 20 years away. How does Alex see his difference? How does he cope with it? You know, it's evolves. it evolves for him. It's, um, for a long time, of course, he just experienced the world the way he did. He didn't know any different. Um, and um, and I, one of the things that has been most striking to me is how much research I can go out and do, but the one thing I can never know is how my own child is experiencing the world. What does he really hear? And even sometimes what does he really think because I'm not sure if he always wants to say but he you know he goes up and down with it and but i i'm really pleased to see how much he's kind of just taken this in stride now and he's done just a little bit of publicity for the book i've really tried to limit it not for understandable reasons but i've been really proud of the way that he's gone out there and kind of owned this experience and he was on cbs this morning people can watch the clip and um he talks about it he talks about it in the new york times and i i found the things he said i actually found them really beautiful and i was i was um so pleased and um and he seems just to have accepted this now as part of who he is and that's great and talk a little bit about the evolution of how you've come to accept it and deal with it yeah, I think I got there. It's a different process as an adult and as a child, right? I, I you know, I probably got there a little sooner um, than he did in some ways, but um, or rather, you know, he didn't know what he was grappling with until he was a little older. Uh, at first, I mean, I think for almost every hearing parent to whom this happens, and that is most, most ninety to ninety-five percent of of deaf and hard of hearing kids are born to hearing parents. So there's a lot of people out there living the same thing that I just lived. And uh, um, at first, it's terrifying and it's devastating, and it just is. You know, you you're you're you want your you you have a vision of what your child's life will look like that usually is something like your own life. And uh, so for me, it was this great unknown, and I I I and. The happy thing for me is that now I really know that it can be known. You can figure this out. And I really do feel that I, too, take it in stride. I mean, I have to work at it. I think about it all the time. And as Alex is, even though he's been really successful, he's in fifth grade now, I still, there's extra sets of meetings and he still gets some extra help. And, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to his schoolwork. I'm always looking for gaps. And um, and and that, I don't think that will ever change. But I don't feel it as this, um, this I, you know, 
it's my new normal and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. And I think it's on lots of levels, it's made both him and me stronger and more interesting. And, um, you know, we've learned a lot because of it. What kind of response have you gotten to the book from the deaf community? Um, actually quite a lovely one. Mostly I'm happy to say, um, it's been interesting to be on the flip side of, of interviews, you know, as a professional journalist, it's not usually (laughs) me who's being interviewed. (laughs) And, um, I, I worked really hard in this book um, to convey the complexity and the nuance of this situation and to tell a lot of different people's version of the story. And, um, and all the deaf people who have read it have really responded to that. Um, I'm sure there's some out there who may not like things that I say, but you know, I think that people recognize that my effort to be fair and balanced, some of the um, reporting on the book has been a little more simplistic than the book itself. And so that some people in deaf culture have objected to, and that was a shame. Um, but at the same time, I was relieved that they they knew that that was not how I presented it in the book necessarily. And so, um, you know, I do feel that that part of the journey has was in some ways the hardest part for me because it was the most uncomfortable, but it was also the most rewarding. Lydia Denworth, her book is I Can Hear You Whisper, An Intimate Journey Through the Silence and Sound of Language. Lydia, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.